Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg and this is episode 186 of the show. A Greatest Hits edition, a compilation, an episode that we're putting together because this week I haven't been able to interview anybody for reasons I will get into. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Osher. If you're new to the show, welcome. Thanks for being here. I uh, work in TV and radio down in Australia and... Um, at the moment, I'm up and back from Brisbane uh, just dealing with some family stuff. And uh, as a result, I have been kind of going to work in, in Sydney and then flying up to Brisbane. And so I've been here quite a bit in the last two weeks, which um, is the reason that I've been doing these intros on an iPhone headset, uh, either behind the wheel of a car or as I am now um, in a back room of a house uh, because I'm not at my studio back in Sydney. But thank you for being here. I hope uh, whatever you're doing this week has been great. Thanks to all the people that sent me great um, uh, Podsy pictures. A Podsy is a picture of whatever the hell you're listening, looking at while you're listening to this. So while you're listening to my voice right now, pull the phone out of your pocket, your wallet, your whatever, not your center console if you're driving. Don't do this if you're driving. So if you're, you know, whatever you're doing around the house, around work, working out, whatever, whip your phone out, take a photo of what you're looking at and uh, send it to me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Or you could email, send osheremail at gmail.com. I've got some great ones this week. Um, there was a lady and I never assume, unless I'm in the room watching the baby crown, I never say, hey, congratulations, you're pregnant. But it turns out in the response email that she wrote, yes, indeed, she is pregnant. So thank you very much for that. Uh, busily uh, running around the house, um, keeping things uh, straight 
and and lovely. Um, I saw a, a, a brilliant podsy of someone who's um, doing their food prep for the week in the kitchen just looked like this epic, epic, epic mission of cleanliness. Uh, I got some uh, uh, great pics of the inside of, I believe it was some light rail. It was a tram somewhere in the world. I don't exactly know where, um, but it's, it's great. I love to see what you're looking at when you're listening to this because it it's pretty great. Um, so thanks heaps. Thanks also to everybody that supports the show on Patreon. That's a way that you can help this show come to air each week. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Osher. If you go to the Patreon page and search my name, it doesn't come up for some reason. But if you go P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash O-S-H-E-R and you pledge some money each month, you will get access to exclusive episodes that are available only to you. The current episode is with Quentin Kennehan. Um, that should be out uh, at the moment. If you don't have it, let me know and I'll, I'll resend the email that I sent to all supporters and I'll make sure you, you get in that. So I hope your week is good, whatever is going on with you. With me, well, you know, like I said, I'm up and back from Brisbane uh, as often as I can at the moment because um, there's a bit of stuff going on up here and um, it's all sorting itself out slowly, but um, but we're getting there. I uh, hope to be hope to be back in the regular routine of things uh, as soon as as soon as I can. But uh, you know, just just doing what I can, just trying to get some sleep in, just trying to eat well, trying to control the things I can control, and try to let go of the things I can't. I think that's the uh, that's the that's the most important thing. Um, I can't control what Coles price managers put upon the price of their avocados, but if I see two for five dollars and I think you know what. There's more of us in the house. I'm going to get three. And I go check them out. And it doesn't cost $7.50, but it costs $9. It's annoying. I can't control that. But I can be annoyed by it. But I'm extracting that metaphor to pretty much everything at the moment. <laughs> it all comes down to avocado pricing, my friends. It all comes down. So how am I going to do a show when I haven't got a show recorded. Well, my magnificent producer, Andy Ma, who you pay for um, by pledging on Patreon, has come up with a brilliant solution. He has cut together uh, a supercut, uh, greatest hits, a compilation, a mixtape of some of the best moments of the show from recent times and some from a little while ago. So if you haven't heard any of the slightly older episodes, you might be in for a surprise. And particularly on the theme today, we're talking about overcoming adversity because that's kind of what's you know what we're going with at the moment and um there's some great guests on the way including denga toot lola berry uh carly finlay and we'll start with uh leanne enoch now the honorable leanne enoch is a minister in the queensland government she's the minister for innovation science and the digital economy she's also the minister for small business in the seat of algister in queensland which is in the north of, of brisbane leanne is the first aboriginal woman to be elected uh, into the Queensland Parliament. Uh, she's a woman who grew up on country, which means uh, you grow up on the country that your people are from, which is a kind of rarity in, in a place so close to a major city like Brisbane in Australia. Uh, she grew up in North Stradbroke Island and then she grew up in Woodridge in Housing Commission, which is on the southern fringes of Brisbane. This was a super interview to do. Uh, her team reached out to me. I went to Queensland Parliament House, uh, Government House, at the end of George Street there, and uh, we had a great conversation. Um, but uh, because we're talking about origin stories and we're talking about overcoming adversity, here's a part of my conversation with Leanne Enoch about how she made sense of her low socioeconomic circumstances when she was a kid. When you don't have anything, but you grow up with 
so much love and um, compassion and uh, fun. Like we had so much fun as a kid. And I think a lot of people in my age bracket or <clears throat> late 40s, um, you know, we had so much fun as kids. You'd get on your bike or you'd go for a, um, you know, walk with your friends up into the bushlands and whatever and mm. be gone all day, make sure you're back by, um, you know, by sundown, that kind of stuff. Um, and we, in Woodridge, we were all in the same kind of boat. Everybody was, you know, there was nobody that had more than somebody else uh-huh. really, except one of my friends had a colour TV. Wow. That was huge because... Um, I don't. I don't know how old you are, but you look much younger than me. But I'm not much. Wizard, <laughs> Wizard of Oz. Um, when that uh, came onto the television set, and it had like half black and white and half color, yeah. I was like so staying at my friend's place because she had a color TV. That was the big, big, big event of you know for kids in our in our suburb. So everybody was over friend's place who had color TV. Um, but apart from that one friend whose whose mum was a teacher at the school. Um, you know, we were all in the same boat, so nobody knew any different. Yeah. So, like I said, until really, you know, we didn't really make any comparisons until you start get start getting into high school. And I remember we went. Um, we were really lucky. Our school uh, was was very much um, committed to making sure that uh, the kids at our school got to have these different experiences. And so, you know, we we went to the snow. We went skiing, which was a huge endeavor. You know. Lots of it's us a had, long way from Brisbane. It was. So and we had 29 hours in a bus. Yeah. There's a long – people from overseas may not understand how far away Brisbane is from everywhere oh, else. yeah, of course. It's a long way. Yeah. And the highway back then was not awesome. No, no. No, not great. Not great at all. It's so, like a yeah. day and a half in a bus. Absolutely. Yeah. With um, a bunch of year 11 and 12 kids. Oh, so, yeah. you know, 16, 17-year-olds. <laughs> that was fun. Uh, <laughs> but one year we, um, we shared the expense of the trip um, with another school from the Gold Coast. And they were from a school where there was a little bit more, um, you know, economic um, advantage, I guess, if you like. Uh, and, boy, did they give it to us, like, all the way down in the bus about being poor kids. And uh, and it wasn't really until then that I, I understood what, what that meant. Yeah. And, like I said, at the time, when you're in your sort of mid to late teens and you're really understanding who you are in the world and how, how that plays a part in how you interact. Um, I mean, it could give you a complex. You think, I'm, oh, I'm poor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm poor. I didn't realise I was, I was poor and that that's a bad thing apparently, you know. And can you imagine now I look at Gigi who's 12 yeah. and she looks at her Instagram and she's constantly looking past yeah. everyone who's got more than us. Yeah, yeah. And like having that experience yeah. every time you look at your phone. Yeah. It's, what a challenging what a challenging concept for kids to get their head around right yeah. now. I think that's why, like I always say, our biggest strength as human beings, regardless of where you come from, is your story. Your story is the strongest thing about you, you know. Like own it, um, hold it up, you know. That's what will propel you into the next part of your life. Um, I, that's what I teach my two sons. I've got two teenage sons um, and hopefully it's sticking with them but – yeah, you know, um, I think those kind of experiences for me um, really just uh, put me on a path around social justice. Right. Yeah. Is that – and when you got off that bus was like that's it or you started getting that feeling of it's not actually okay with me that this is going on? Yeah, I think at that time it was more a case of I feel bad for myself at the time. You go, oh, I must be – less than somebody Mm. and that's not a great feeling for any kid to have um and then 
it just sort of started my mind going in that space of, well, if I feel like that, well, how do my friends feel? Well, I'm going to stick up for my friends. And then it kind of, it kind of just propels you down this path of, um, you know, I want to make a difference and I want to educate people. I want to, um, you know, teach people that about the strength of their own story. Um, and I want to make a difference in terms of social justice. So, you know, that sort of put me on a, on a particular path. How did your folks talk to you about this kind of stuff? Well, it's really interesting because my mum and dad, so my dad, um, my, my Aboriginal parent, so uh, very, uh, very recognisable Aboriginal man, like very dark-skinned and, you know, everything that you would imagine an Aboriginal man looks like. My mum, a non-Indigenous woman, um, so very, very fair lady. I look very much like her. Um, my brothers uh, look more like my father. So it's a really interesting, uh, it's a really interesting mix. But they were married in the same year that um, the referendum allowed my father to vote and be counted as a citizen. I, I seriously, mm. I've, I have just chills that that was even a thing. Mm. You know. Mm. So they. Nineteen sixty-seven. My mm. God. I know. Nineteen sixty-seven. So mum and dad were very young, um, but here they were getting married in the same year that. The, the nation was having a conversation about the rights to of Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people to be counted as human beings. It was no longer fauna. Yeah. No longer flora and fauna. Mm. So having grown up like that, it's, mm. I mean, anyone who's in their 40s will probably start to realise the things that they go, hang on, that's only in my life because that's my dad's thing. You know, you find yourself carrying some of your parents' pain. It's just the how it is. Mm. Did you did that kind of pass on? Like, if your dad's been treated like that his whole life by a country that was essentially taken from him, that's hard not to be upset at the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I guess um, you know, which goes to your question earlier about, well, how did my parents talk to me about the world? Um, you know, because they were so young, and I think for my dad, um, you know, here he was, um, a, an Aboriginal man who lived on his country. Um, and for the first time proper, he was living off his country. Um, so that's how we refer to it in Australia. You know, um, if you look at the landmass of Australia and the same way that you look at Europe with all the different countries, it's the same mm. thing in Australia. I've got a map on my wall. You say so you know it. It's like 280, something like yeah, that? Yeah, so there's there's some... Yeah, well, there are some estimates up to around the 350. Right. So, but, yeah, about 280... And dialects, that many... Totally different. It's yeah. like going across the border between, um, you know, uh, countries in Europe. So mm. if you go to Italy or if you go to France, completely different language, different art, different dance, different food, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, so um, here's my dad who, uh, you know, grew up on his country and he's moved off his country into the mainstream. Uh, we're living in this um, suburb where there's a mix of people who have different views about Aboriginal people um, migrants and all the rest of it. Mixed marriage. Mixed marriage, yeah. The, all of those sort of things. So for him, I think he's uh, at the time as a 19, 20-year-old man, um, you know, he had to deal with his own identity issues at that at that time as well as hold down a job and take care of his family. And so I think there were times when he found that very confronting and, you know, and he shared his emotions with the family. So, you know, I saw that firsthand. I'd saw things like, you know, if we'd go on family holidays, 
Um, back in the day when there weren't seat belts in the back, you know, we'd all sit in the back seat and you'd drive up to Cairns or wherever in this car. Again, 20, 24 hours, 20, 26 way. hours. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, sometimes we'd stop at a hotel or a motel um, to spend the night and Dad would send Mum in because in case, and it was a subtle thing, but you notice it, it's like Mum's always the one that goes in to see if there's a room for it for us. Because uh, Dad would always say, no, because if I go, they might knock us back just because he's he's a black man. Wow. So it's those subtle things that you grow up with and yeah. you don't ask the question uh, explicitly, but you sense it and you digest it in a particular way. And then, you know, as the years go along, you start to ask deeper questions about it. And my dad was very open about um, his experiences with racism um, and why sometimes he felt fearful um, and why he was defensive sometimes. He did not come to one of my school events to see uh, a production or a, a, an award ceremony or anything like that. He did as the with the younger boys. Um, I think you know he became more confident in that space as he got uh, as he got older. But the fear that if he turned up, that somehow that might be a bad thing for me or or for my younger brother. Because you've got to remember, back then, um, even in the early 70s, um, in the early 70s, so this is when we had moved from the island to the mainland, in the early 70s, um, Aboriginal kids who were fair-skinned like me were being removed from their families. And that was a real fear. So the idea that, you know, that might be something that he would contribute to was something he just, you know... Mm. That, there's so many things there that... <laughs> Like just listening to you speak just then, you're just trying to relate it to my own family. And the, I think the one thing that to be so – I just – let me ask this. Where does, where does the feeling of shame come in around all of this? Mm. Well, I know when that word shame, I think about my grandmother um, who I just adored and if you – you get a handle on Aboriginal culture, and for some of your overseas listeners, um, you know Aboriginal culture. Uh, grandparents are really important; like they play a key role in the upbringing of children. For my grandmother, who was um, who was an incredibly important um, person in my life and in my brother's lives, um, you know she experienced worse things than my father. I mean. Uh, you know, she grew up in Cairns, um, you know, at the time of uh, World War Two, and, uh, you know, her families were removed from their, forcibly removed from their, from their countries. Um, she, it was, it was, um, you know, forced into the minds of young people at that time, of her growing up, that being Aboriginal was a shameful thing, that it was a bad thing. Um, that if you spoke your language, that was a dirty, non-godlike thing. Um, that's that shame. Um, when I when I was little, I remember her, I remember this very clearly. Actually, I was in I was in grade eleven, so I was about sixteen, uh, and I was talking to. I was the first one to get to this stage in my family, so I was talking to her about my future, and I was saying, you know, should I? continue on with school and go to uni, I think I want to go to university maybe. Um, or should I drop out now and get a job like everybody else or, you know, um, 
it was one of those sort of crossroad moments. And she held my hand and she said in such a loving and warm way that I thought, oh, these, these are encouraging words. Okay, this is what's, you know, going to help me make my decision. She said to me, you can walk amongst them and they'll never know. You can walk amongst them and they'll never know. That's what she said to me. And I was like, what the heck are you talking about? But, of course, this was about you don't need to ha- – this is her, her um, dealing with the shame and this is how she, um, you know, projected it. Yeah. Um, the idea that somehow um, either I could play a different role because people wouldn't straight away think I'm Aboriginal um, or that maybe at the time she was thinking, well – you could um, slip through and maybe be uh, have some success because, you know, if you don't tell them you're Aboriginal, you'd be okay. Uh, uh, this was part of her um, understanding her own um, beliefs that she yeah. had been, that had been hammered into her brain. So that's, that's the shame stuff. Yeah. When I think of the word shame, those lessons that I learnt from my grandmother are how I sort of, you know, think about it. Mm. The way that, you know, you, you see so many people pay such attention to the way they bring up their kids and what values mm. they put their kids upon, mm. to consider that there's such an enormous part of our society who grew up with these messages mm. of, no, actually, no, you're less than mm. and you're not worth. And even now being told, just get over it. Yeah. It's a long time it. ago. What are you going on about? <laughs> so, because I'm just thinking about your father, it must have been, I think, in 67, when I think about it, to have grown up in your own country in the late 60s would have been quite a, an uncommon thing. Mm. Yeah. I mean, she, uh, so, so for my, so my dad, um, we, our family was quite fortunate on North Strawberry Island. Um, uh, there was a mission there, mm. um, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't the same as what you saw on mainland mm. um, Queensland. So it was still bad. There was still, you know, uh, you're not allowed to speak language. There's no corroboree or ceremony to be conducted here, that kind of stuff. Um, but it wasn't as harsh as what you saw on the mm. mainland. And um, uh, I think only a few of our family members ended up being moved to Sherberg, um, which is not far from – it's about three hours' drive from Brisbane. But mm. – um, we we were quite fortunate, I think. You know, that's my dad's recollection of it as well. That were, there, were there still corroborees going on? Um, not to the same extent that you would have expected. Yeah. Um, but you know, my dad taught has taught taught me and taught my brothers and my sons, um, you know, some some very important lessons about their country yeah. and their culture. You know, it's probably the same for every every person, every grandparent out there, um, every person who's had the the privilege of having grandparents in their lives. Um, it's probably the same, but for me, my grandparents, which were many, um, they they had this way of giving you these little lessons that you just store in the back of your mind or in your heart somewhere um, that you don't sort of think about until the time that you need it. And they could have been long gone from this earth, you know, 20 years ago. And all of a sudden you're remembering that one thing that they had placed in your um, spirit, if you like, about this, this thing. So um, from those words from my grandmother, um, every time I take the next step, I create a new interpretation of what she, what she was trying to teach me. Hmm. And were you able to go straight from high school to uni? 
Yes. Oh wow. So Good I went. I went straight into university. So first first person in my entire family to do that, of course. So at what point did you get? Because a lot of people go, oh, I'm upset with this. I'm upset with this, and oh, I'll vote this particular way, mm. or I'll. You know, I'll go to this meeting or I'll enroll in this party. At what point do you go, okay, I'm going to have to I'm, – I'm, I'm so moved by the need for change, I'm going to have to get my – roll my sleeves up and get in? You know, I wish that it – I wish I could tell a story of that, that I had a pivotal moment mm. where I wanted to, um, you know, be an activist and make big change. But it wasn't like that. I've just always felt like I, um, I need to be part of um, – you know, that change movement. I need to be part of what is going to be next for Queensland and for Australia. And so even as a teacher, I was thinking about it, you know. Even as a um, – uh, from then I went into policy and I wanted to be in the middle of how do we how do we um, um, enact some change in this so that, uh, you know, people are better off. That so this is a – so you went into a role that was not elected in. No. You worked underneath somebody who was elected in helping that somebody yeah. with, okay, let's figure out a policy that, that we can try and present. Well, I worked for um, – I was a public servant. So oh. um, I, so I came, I, I came from the uh, classroom into the education department to uh-huh. write policy. Right. Um, and then from there worked in local government and then um, back into state government and then um, worked for Australian Red Cross for nearly seven years. Um, again, looking at how do we uh, ensure that everybody gets a fair go in, in in moving forward. So even those people who are the most vulnerable, how do we create some level playing field so that they can be part of they can be part of um, you know the future mm. um, that uh, just as I was the first in my family, there are still pe- there are still Aboriginal people and families who haven't had a first in their family to get to university or to finish high school. So, you know, these, I know how important that is. So these are things that I became very passionate about. And so I've always wanted to be in the hurly-burly of policy making and um, change making. And then one day I was um, in a paddock at Laura at the Laura Festival, which is this huge um, Indigenous arts um, and dance festival. Um, it happens every couple of years. Um, and they do it in Laura, which is a very remote town in Queensland. Um, and people go and camp out there and all the rest of it. So I was there with the Department of Education and my minister at the time um, was Anna Bly, who became the Premier for Queensland. And so I'm in this paddock. She's walking down with a towel over her shoulder. She's off down the creek with everybody else for a swim because it was a hot day. And I'm just chatting away to her like a normal person. You know, she's talking to me about how she loves being part of policy, creation, etc. I'm like, oh, I like doing that. I mean, I didn't have any um, – there were no markers in the water for me. There were no beacons mm-hmm. to say this is the next place to go. And then I met this woman who became, you know, the leader of Queensland uh, and she somehow lit up a marker for me to say, even for me as an Aboriginal woman, this could be something – this is another direction that you could take. And it wasn't long after that that I joined the Labor Party and then I um, got involved in, um, you know, how do you create good policy um, in the political realm? And then it kind of just eventuated from there. And now, again, there's so many firsts in my life. I'm a bit scared of what's going to come next. But, uh, you know, first Aboriginal woman elected to the Queensland Parliament, first Aboriginal person to ever hold a ministry in a cabinet. Um, and it's 2016. Like that happened last year. But 
the first time that that's ever happened. Yeah. Yeah. That was Leanne Enoch. You can find her on Twitter, I believe, at Leanne Enoch MP. Uh, this is a supercut. This is a mixtape. This is the greatest hits of the show. And the next guest to have on to talk about overcoming adversity is Denga Tut. Uh, Deng, of course, is familiar to Australians through the University of Western Sydney commercials. He's a guy that, in his recent book, Songs of a War Boy, describes in chilling detail the life of a child soldier, which, which includes horrific first-hand accounts of battle, torture, death, and the kind of barbaric brutality that only humans can inflict upon other humans. When he was 12, Deng was rescued by his older brother, and smuggled out of Sudan into Kenya, where he then met an Australian couple that then helped him and his brother come here to Australia to start a new life. Deng is now a lawyer uh, and an incredibly sharp-dressed man. He's a very fashionable cat. Deng came to my house in Bronte to have a conversation, and the part of the story we're going to listen to today is where, you know, he talks about him overcoming the adversity of what it was like to arrive in Australia. When I came here... I had a family that sponsored me. They were Australian. White. All right? I mean white. They were white people. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm black, right? Yeah? Yes? Do we agree mm-hmm. on black? We do. Good. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm the, from the face of the planet, I'm one of the darkest people. Darkest people in Africa. So we, we, we have a darker skin. And... Being dark skin, and this white woman uh, helped me to come to this country. What were her, were her intention to make me somebody lesser human, or to give me a life to be a human, or to give me opportunity that I got that far uh, to even go to university and, and study in Western Sydney? Uh, and what did this woman do to me? She, she was a mother. I was just like her son. So the way we treat other people, if we try to be kind, just like that woman that didn't see anything wrong with me, and then we can be all cool with each other. We can be cool. I, I use the word cool because cool is cool. It makes me smile and make everybody smile. That is how we can build a nation together. And if we talk about immigrants, well, let's talk about Adam and Eve. Where did they, where did they start from? For those who, read, who are Christians, where did they originate from? They originated in Africa, that's what people say, right? Garden of Eden or other places. And then we multiply. Have we not migrated from where we mm-hmm. first started? Yeah. So we migrated already from that point. And when you go, when you just keep going to migrate and build and you migrating further, whatever happened to you, whether you use whatever mean to get there, you're still a migrant mm-hmm. to that place. Whether there were no people there, you're still a migrant. And we are all migrants on the face of this earth, all of us. And one day, our spirit will migrate with us if we die. So we can't talk about all these possessions that we, we got and we possess certain piece of land, piece of, uh, uh, of clothing or other items 
or objects that will not go with us. It is quite true that anything physical that we can reflect back and memorize it, have a memory, a good memory, and leave it behind, that is something that we want to destroy. I'm talking about human, humanity. That is the only thing that is meaningful. If it isn't meaningful, then what is meaning to you about the object, the gold, the gold watch you have, I have in my hand when I'm, when I'm dead? Will I know who got it? Would anyone go, go, go follow me and say, yes, uh, Ding, your watch has gone to your sister? <laughs> will I know that person there? Well, we will perceive that is exactly what could happen, but we don't know. So things that we know we can fix while we're still alive are the most important things we can fix. And the thing that we won't fix after we're dead, what goods are they to us? Because we won't know what will happen to them. And that is what we should all be struggling to understand, that uh, all the problems that we have in the world, we created it against each other, and we're doing that against each other for, then we for have- nothing. But then we have to look at ourselves and take responsibility. It's so much easier when I get to blame someone else. <laughs> yeah. Particularly if they look different from me. Yes. And a, a friend of mine said before, said, every time you point your finger at somebody, like I'm just pointing a finger at you now, Osha. You see, the other three are pointing at me. Yeah. Even if you point that way, it's still pointing somewhere else, but it's always directly, I'm pointing one finger right at you. Yeah. And the other one is not even going, the thumb is not going right at you. But the other three are pointing right at me. Mm. It said something big, right? Three versus one, democratic mm. principle. Yeah. I lost. You won because <laughs> I used one finger, three. Because I have done, I could have done three bad things. I have done bad things. But I'm pointing at you, just try to vilify you, to make you look bad, to make you look not so human to vilify you, to demoralize you. And that is just because of one thing, that these people don't look like us. But the other three there, fingers are pointing at me, basically telling me that you are not fair because the other three are pointing at you that you are doing three wrong things. Mm-hmm. So why do we point at a particular person when we don't know whether we're clean or not, we're good or not, good people inside and outside or not. So there's a lot of darkness, all right, that you have seen. Yeah. So what makes you happy now? Uh, make me happy? Uh, is just to see a child smile. Children, see my nephew, my nieces. Just be able to smile, not to be able to, uh, not to be worried about what they, where they're going to sleep, where they're going to eat, when the next bomb is about to drop, not to worry about when they're going to get water, or their iPhone, or Samsung Galaxy. Be able to know that they have all these things. Not to worry about hospital, emergency ambulance, the police, triple O code, which is just right there in the palm of your hand. Being able to have all these things in my hand and be able to make the right decision at the right moment. 
that's what make me happy because I'm not, I'm, I'm just now myself. I, I am able to make wise decision about where to sleep or where to work. Let me just tell you this crazy example. When we were coming from Bor, my hometown, and we were going to Juba, South Sudan, we didn't have a plane to go. A jet, there was none. So we decided to, to use a, uh, a road. The road was muddy. It was really muddy. You're talking about a mud in South Sudan. We knew, I knew that it can happen. But we decided to leave by car. Uh, three days earlier, on the same road, we know that people were killed on the same road and it's unsafe, nobody travel. But we decided to go. On our way, on Juba Bo Road, not even, not even halfway, we got stuck in the mud. We couldn't get out. It was getting dark. We were scared, but we were lucky because there were another truck that stuck there, and there were people there. So we pay them a bit of money, and they help us push the car out, and off we go. The first thing that came into my head that minute was that I'm not going to sleep in this car if. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You get dark. I'm going to find a place on the top of the tree, a distant away, and sleep there until morning. And then I come back and during the, when, when it is daylight. I told Ben that because that's the safest place you can be. If you are in a car, you're dead. But all in my mind, at that very moment, I'm entertaining the possibilities of me being dead in, in that car. And of course, if it did happen, we were just dead bodies. But we were lucky, but I knew that I have a plan B in my mind. And plan B was simply my instinct. You can't sleep in a car. But a band would say, no, 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 we're going to sleep in a car. It's a safe place to be. Not safe. Not even safe for, for a lion or a cheetah. Or a lion, of course, would smack that car. Not safe for a thief. Not safe for a bullet. No, not safe for anything. But a distance away. On the top of the tree, it's safe because lion won't go, won't climb up, won't climb up. Some of them jump to a short tree, but won't climb up. So all these things, I have them in my mind because I think something that would make me happy 
is to be able to continuously uh, be able to help my nephew and my nieces, be able to know their dad, their family, their friends, be able to live in this country protected. Because if I'm not here, uh, I, don't, I don't think the, uh, there will be anybody there to guide them. And that's why it's important that I smile because of my life. I smile because I'm happy. I smile because I know I got a purpose. And that is important. I got a purpose for being alive. And if anyone doesn't know that simple message, and then let me just tell you, find a purpose, something worthwhile that you can do. And thing that will make you happy, you'll find, the, you'll find that, you find those in the purpose. And I've always said that the beautiful thing that I always look upon, share it with me, is to be able to enjoy what is called justice. It is the greatest thing present anyone can, can receive. It's a greatest prize that the judges that sit in the courtroom are able to give to somebody. That is the greatest prize. It's not the money. Lawyers are broke. Let me tell you, a lot of lawyers are broke. But we're not completely uh, broke because we got a prize, a justice. And that's what we should always aspire to do, be able to as uh, and aspire to make sure that it is done properly. And that is always would be our, uh, my message to almost every other lawyer because that is what we aspire to do. And justice should be the only present that we can always strive for. And we all be happy. That's a smile. That's it. I hope you're enjoying this Supercut uh, Greatest Hits episode of the podcast this week. We're kind of going back through the archives and bringing up some of the best stories about overcoming adversity. And I hope you are finding some parallels with your life and things that you might be able to reflect upon and things that might be able to help you through your week. Um, my next guest who has a great story and a great uh, story of overcoming adversity is Carly Finblay. Carly is an appearance activist, a blogger and a writer from Melbourne, Australia. Carly was born with ichthyosis, two forms of ichthyosis in fact, uh, Netherton syndrome and later erythroderma. Now, this basically causes her skin to renew itself at an incredibly fast rate. So, you know that, that kind of new painful skin you get after you've cut yourself quite significantly? Her skin is like that all over her body all the time. Um, more so upon her face uh, where it gets exposed to the, the elements because her skin can dry out. It can be susceptible to inflammation, itchiness, gives her a noticeably red complexion. Uh, and she's also shiny when you see her because she's constantly got to apply paraffin to her skin to alleviate the pain and discomfort. And this is this paraffin is what gives her a shiny appearance. Carly's a, a wonderful woman to follow on Twitter, to follow online and to read about. She's uh, in, incredibly eloquent in the way she describes her experience in modern society. And the part of her conversation that we're going to listen to today is, is where I asked her how she would describe herself. I'm red. People tell me I look sunburnt. Um, I just, yeah, just red. Um, probably walk a bit um, stiff because I'm sore. 
Yeah. And and why are you red and why are you sore? I have a skin condition called ichthyosis. I was born with it. Um, there's no cure. I'm okay with that. I'm not looking for a cure. Um, and it's a genetic condition. So my parents who, you know, came from South Africa and England had no idea who they were, who each other were before they met. And then they had this gene, which they didn't know they had until I was born. And here I am. And what, what, what does ichthyosis do? Oh, it's just, it's a bit shit really sometimes. Yeah. Um, it's it, it, my form of ichthyosis is on the severe end. So there's 24 types and I have um, a type called Netherton syndrome and it's on the severe scale. So the most severe scale is harlequin ichthyosis, which can be fatal and mine can be too. Wow. Um, so mine means that um, I'm red and scaly on all over. My face is the reddest because it's exposed to the elements, mm. um, but it's certainly not the sorest part of my body at the moment. I'm really sore on my legs and my arms and... Um, and it means that my body, so your body would shed um, skin once every 28 days. So my body sheds that skin in one day. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So it's just working over time and, you know, like I'm constantly, my body's constantly doing things to keep up with the skin. Um, and there's, I, I don't really know the, techni the technical terms for it, but there's a protein missing and that means that my hair is also affected. So I've got a lot of hair for someone with ichthyosis, but a lot of people don't have hair. Yeah. Um, one good thing, I don't have any body hair, which is great. Saves me money. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, it's, yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's not bad. Like I'm not dying with it, but at the moment, I'm a little bit miserable because I've just had four weeks of amazing skin because I was overseas and I've come back to feeling really sore and miserable and thinking I could do it all, like back at the day job and back at freelancing and I've just curled up in a heap. What happened over the four weeks that it was amazing? Oh, I was on my honeymoon. Oh, okay, that'll do it. <laughs> I was on my honeymoon. We were in Europe. The weather was great. Like, I mean, it was perfect weather. It was The humidity was a lot different. The dermatologist was telling me yesterday that the Melbourne humidity has decreased a lot now. So um, a lot of people with eczema have flared up. So, you know, my skin's quite similar to eczema, though a lot worse. Um, but I think it was just relaxed. You know, we were eating great food, yeah. you know, just seen great things. Yeah. Yeah. And now, I, often after really fun events, unfortunately, this happens, like after the wedding, just, I got sick. So I've been, I've been pretty sore this year, but, oh. but I'm okay. Does it leave you vulnerable to infection and things like yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, might have to use, uh, like a mixture of liquid paraffin, soft white paraffin to keep a barrier, you know, moisture barrier, but that, but if I don't, then I get cracks and it will leave me open to infection. It'll leave me, um, I, you know, I can't move my arms properly, my legs properly if I get too dry. Um, we have to be really careful around people who haven't been immunised, have to, like cold sores and stuff like that. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, it can be hard. A friend of mine was really sick recently and, uh, you know, she's my best friend and I was really sick recently and I, I don't think we've seen each other for about three months because wow. we were just too sick to see each other oh. just in case we accidentally pass something on to each other. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How would people who have... Uh, let's just say normal skin, mm -hmm. how could they possibly relate to what it feels like? I don't know because I don't, I don't know what it's like to have normal skin. Okay. But I can, I can feel my skin like I'm aware of it all the time. Like yeah. I, sometimes I said to, say to my husband, like, are you aware of your skin? Okay. No, he, he's not. Um, so until, basically the idea is like until I tell people who are listening, you can feel the clothes on your back right now mm. or you can feel your legs and your trousers. Oh, my legs are thub thumping right now, yeah. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. they're not – your brain can kind of switch it off but you've got the – would it be at all like – like for example, when I came off my bicycle last mm -hmm. year, 
um, I had new skin pretty much from my wrist to my um, upper arm. It was just, it was all just mincemeat. Yeah. And the entire first layer was gone off. Yeah. I had to have it dressed for about a week. But yep. then once it stopped weeping, mm-hmm. um, it was like bright pink and yeah. really, really, really sensitive. Yeah. Would that yeah. Be- yeah, absolutely. So, um, a lot of the time, maybe maybe twice a year, my skin goes through this whole shed. And sorry, this is a bit gross, right. but it goes through a whole shed. And I think it's starting now. You can sort of see on, yeah. on my fingers. But um, then I don't have that top hard layer. And so to touch things is really hard. You know, I can't open things when I want to cook or can't touch a hot cup. or mm. um, Yeah, so that and, and it happens on my feet as well. So that's really hard to walk on. So, so. how... Were your parents, like as you're a kid, you think mm. your reality is the same as everyone's reality. Did you, at what point did you realise that you were different from other kids? Maybe when I went to daycare. Like I remember going to preschool and like the kids still tease me, but it, they kind of moved past that. But having one day I think I had to go to daycare when I wasn't able to go to preschool or something. And I remember kids just like pinching and punching me and stuff. So I remember that. That might have been when I was three. But I don't know. It was odd. I never, like I knew I was different, but back then I never identified with having a disability or illness. Like this is just what it was, you know, like I would get sick, I'd go into hospital, but this is just how it was. So Yeah. Mm. But as you, as you grow up, kids, as a general rule, kids are pretty horrible Mm. uh, and pretty afraid of anything that doesn't look like them and Mm. mask that fear with aggression sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. that would have been wild because your par- parents would have had to brief each teacher. Going, yeah. Oh, by the way, this is Carly. She can't do this. She can't mm, do that. Don't mm. let other kids do this and that to her. Yeah, I think my parents were very, um, very, very protective. And I remember, you know, sometimes if we'd see kids in the street that had um, teased me, you know, they'd say, "Don't you ever do this to my my child again," sort of thing. And then my parents then would probably get a call from their parents to say, "Don't you speak to my kid like that," you know. It was it was really hard. It was a small town and, like I said, um, it's pretty lonely being a kid. And also that, like, the lack of friends and the, the teasing didn't really give me a good opportunity to be a good friend myself. Yeah. So I didn't know what it was like to have that kind of reciprocal friendship. Yeah, because mm. especially in your, what, you are in Albury at the time. Yeah, near Albury, yeah, which is in a, Walla Walla, Walla, Walla. <laughs> the 500 town. Right. Okay, so your parents are walking down the street mm. and you come home from school and you're in tears and they say, why? So, oh, you know, Bruce teased me. And they're walking down to the Lowe's mm. or whatever, or the big W, and they see Bruce. Is that the kid? Yes, that's the kid. And then two grown people take mm. a <laughs> like a ten year old or eleven year old to task. Yeah, yeah. It's mean, pretty I scary if you're ten or eleven to have exactly. And I don't think to it have was retribution come. But I just think that I don't know. Like I don't. I don't know whether children realise the impacts. Yeah. of their words, and um, you yeah. know, like a, a lot of people say to me, "Oh, you know, kids have to learn or whatever," but it, that still sticks with me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, it, it would. It, mm. it would. It did. And what happened when you went to high school? You went to high school in the same town? No, I went to high school in Albury. Uh-huh. Mm, I remember so- my parents saying it would get better. Um, I don't think it did. Like I still felt alone and a bit yeah, a bit lonely. I spent a lot of time in the library. Yeah. Um, when the internet came, like that was amazing. You know, when I was 14 or 15, the internet came. And I remember my library teacher said, oh, you might want to look up some stuff about ichthyosis on the internet. Like, you can connect with people. And then um, I did. And, and But then I also used to spend a lot of time looking up Savage Garden. Because yeah. I'm such a Darren Hayes fan, yeah. and um, and that that was amazing. Like just the connection that I could have with people around the world. I didn't have to tell them what I looked like, or um, yeah, it was 
So it, you're sitting there in the library and what, you're doing like an IRC chat? or you're Yeah, doing I think a- it was IRC or ICQ. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then, and then of course, we got the internet at home and... Yeah, and, it, you know, and I would spend a lot just, of time. So necessarily connecting with other people who have the same condition, or just some other of them. People? Yeah, uh, then maybe not so. Now definitely, like you know, yeah. that's part of my my career, I guess. But um, but then yeah, I met a few people, but more so just connecting with random people, and I never had to tell them. I could choose how much I wanted to tell them about my appearance, and yeah. my skin. So I remember taking the day off. This is so embarrassing, but taking the day off to, when um. Savage Gardens, I Knew I Loved You was released when I was in year 12, I think, in 1999. And um, I took the day off then to listen to it on the radio because it was, you know, that when, yeah. when that was simulcast at one time. So yeah. the song was going to be released at 11 on every radio station or whatever. So I took the day off to listen to that. And um, and then that day I think I met a boy on ICQ and we were chatting and we had a bit of a real-life relationship even. So Wow. Mm. What was the experience like? Um, being able to connect with people online mm. without having to disclose so much about who your condition or, or, yeah. or what you look like. What was it like for the first time to be connected with without that judgment? Yeah, it was, it was better, I thought. You know, like I, I could be me. Um, and, you know, I, the internet's so much a part of my life now. I wouldn't be where I am career-wise or um, self-love-wise even, mm. you know, without it. So it was great. But it took a long time to, for me to um, be able to put my photo up on my profile or up on the internet. And um, I can talk about this now if you want. But I was always worried that my photo would be misused. And when I was doing my... Um, and I've been blogging for years, I, I never, but I never put my photo up. I don't even think I mentioned my, my condition or my name. And then when I was midway through my Masters of Communication, I thought I've got to start um, a portfolio of work. And that's why I started this current blog. And I, you know, I was really upfront with who I was and what my condition was. And, um, you know, and, and then I've been putting my photo up on the internet for years, you know, since MySpace Mm. Um, days, you know, back in 2006 maybe. And my photo in 2013 was misused on, uh, as I feared it would be. Mm. You know, back then, my reason for not putting my photo up, it, it had come true. Um, I woke up to about 500 comments on Reddit. Um, I actually woke up to a lot of different, um, a lot of traffic to my blog rather. Yeah. And then I clicked over to Reddit and there was 500 comments on the What the Fuck forum just like ridiculing me. Oh. And... Um, yeah, it was it was a weird feeling. Like I didn't really think of, I didn't really, I didn't. It didn't really like hit me or make me cry or anything like that. It wasn't like it didn't devastate me. I wasn't in tears, but I wrote about it on Facebook, and then I took that that I wrote on Facebook and I mod- modified it, and I responded to those Reddit people like just posted straight in the forum, like, yeah, this is me, this is who I am, and I have ichthyosis, and this is what it means. And I directed them back to my blog, and I said, you know, while you were making fun of a stranger on the internet. I was out the night before seeing my most favourite band ever mm. and I'm now, you know, like spent the night with my boyfriend and you were making fun of a stranger on the internet. Like, Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that changed the conversation around um, like a whole lot. So then um, people were like, wow, thanks. Thanks for explaining. We've learned something. I wrote about it on my blog that night after work. And the next morning, I got tweets from CNN to say, can we tell your story? I'm like, what? This is crazy. So it went viral. Um, the next day at work, I, you know, I, I was really mindful to keep my work 
back then I was a public servant. So mindful to keep my work and my writing life separate. But I was getting calls from the Daily Mail, Mamma Mia, News Limited to have my story told. And I wrote a few pieces for those places. Um, and then I think by the, that night, my, I had like 80,000 hits on my blog. Wow. And I'd get that in a month. So it was, you know, a huge amount of attention. And my friend texted me going, Charlie Pickering's talking about you on the project tonight. I'm like, <laughs> wow, really? <laughs> I'd met him a couple of months prior. So that was pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, and so I managed to turn that conversation around, which was amazing. Yeah. You mm. talked about talked about self-love. Yeah. Everybody listening yeah. has looked in the mirror probably in the last 24 hours and gone, I can't stand this about my body. Mm. What have you learned about self-love? Oh, that you just got to love yourself. You just got to not not worry about how society tells you how to look. And I think um, I was thinking about it a while, like a few years ago and so many people assume that I wouldn't be confident with how I look or or even to the point where that I might make them uncomfortable, like to be to the point of not being in selfies with people because they're a bit worried about what their followers might think, you know, that kind of superficial bullshit. And, um, but, you know, one of the things that I really believe is you've got to look the world in the eye when they're not comfortable looking you in the eye. So, you know, if people are staring at me down the street and quickly look away, I'll look at them. I'll go, hey, how you going? Or, you are right? Give them an up nod. And that really makes them feel uncomfortable. My husband probably notices it more than me. Yeah, like <laughs> the other day we were in a shopping centre and there was a group of people, tourists, and they were um, like, this is in Melbourne, not overseas, but we, and they took their glasses off to have a look. And so he just stands there like, you know, like looking at them back. And I just couldn't stop laughing that they had just made such a point to stare. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't notice it much when we were overseas. And um, I said to him, I haven't really noticed. Like I got a couple of comments, but maybe three. People are pretty polite, especially in England. I didn't know the language in the other countries, so can't really deal with them that way. But um, Adam's like, oh, yeah, I've noticed. I've noticed the stares. Yeah. So I don't, yeah, I don't notice. It just goes over my head. I'm on a show that has a a broad target on its back mm. um, when it comes to diversity, and I'm very aware of it. Mm. And how would you be? I'm I'm so aware of it now that I'm a stepdad. Mm. I, you know, you can't be what you can't see. Mm. And I look on TV and mm. I see what is what is Gigi seeing, right? How can these these kids look at the telly, which is the main media that any any household consumes? Mm. How can these kids look at the telly and think about what the world holds for them when I don't see anyone that looks like them? Exactly. And I don't see anybody that even resembles them. But last year I hosted the first ichthyosis meet in Australia and that was because I brought together people who read my blog, people who are in online support groups and all these people came together at the Melbourne Zoo last year, you know, 75 of us. And that's never happened before. What was that like? It was amazing. Like it was what I needed as a kid. So... Yeah. Who was the youngest person? Oh, about seven months. Oh, my goodness. So cute. And then, yeah, there were people my age as well. And there were people that never met anyone else with the condition and, like, some kids said it was the best day of their life. One little girl's like, I'm out for a boyfriend. <laughs> she was nine or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that, you know, I think that, yeah, that I spend a lot of time online and writing online and I feel like I have to. I have an obligation to write about these issues, but I also need, I also know when to step back and and not, and, you know, certainly I can have a laugh at it or whatever. And I don't, I don't 
receive the abuse as much as other people, which I'm thankful for, but sad that they do. It's certainly an Australian first. Yep. To have 70 something people. Yeah. So not all of them had ichthyosis. There but was 25 of them that had ichthyosis and yeah. then their families came as well. Yeah. But, yeah. And you were at Melbourne Zoo? Yeah. People so, flew from around the country to and, be here? And New Zealand. And New Zealand? Yeah. So, so to, I, um, to gather must have been extraordinary. It was a huge amount of work to do. Um, so we knew that in, the, in our little Facebook group, in our Australian Ichthyosis Support Facebook group, we knew that we wanted to meet, but um, I don't think anyone wanted to step in and, and do, you know, do all of the work. And I just said, hey, I'll do it. I used to be an events planner at work, so I could do it. And I have the online influence, I guess, of getting brands who gave us stuff. So I emailed a whole heap of different brands and, like, Olympus gave us a camera. Wow. For uh, me, a camera and then a prize for someone there. And Mugu, the skincare company, gave us heaps of stuff and um, QV and Dermies and all these places like skin kind of care places gave mm. us all this stuff, which is great. Um, I did crowdfunding on GoFundMe, so we raised about I know three thousand dollars, and I got a grant as well from the Awesome Foundation, so that paid for the rental of the room. Mm. And um, yeah, I think that yeah, the the room cost was the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I um, organised doctors from the Royal Children's and Royal Melbourne Hospital to come and talk a little bit about what the treatment options are and um, then I was the one that interviewed those people so that was pretty exciting to be like a patient and then be interviewing them. Yeah, but to give, I mean, you basically, sounds to me like you gave that little girl growing up in the small town what she never had by giving those kids that you saw, those nine-year-old kids, that, hey, yeah. There's other people in the world because you must have felt like you were yeah, the only absolutely. person on earth. Yeah, I did. And it was so amazing to, you know, I've met I met probably 100 people now with ichthyosis. Um, but to have all those people in one room, um, went in the show notes maybe you can put up a photo of us. All yeah, there. sure. Yeah, it was so good. Um, one of the people that I've met um, through blogging, um, Robin runs a company called Tiny Superheroes and she makes um, superhero capes for sick kids. Mm. So she sent us all a superhero cape for each of the kids with ichthyosis, wow. which is great. Um, yeah, it was it was so good. And a lot of those kids keep in touch now and I've seen them around the country when I've been to Sydney and Gold Coast and stuff. So, yeah. Um, and last month I got an award for the work that I did and um, the other beneficiary who uh, was allowed to receive an award was one one of those that came to yeah. the event, Curie, and she's got ichthyosis as well. So we're almost through the overcoming adversity episode of this podcast where we're looking back upon past episodes and bringing together some of the best stories about people overcoming things that got in the way. And the idea is to, you know, help you, help me, just remind ourselves that other people have overcome adversity. We can overcome adversity this week too. And we're going to finish up with Lola Berry, who is, uh, as she describes, Australia's favourite nutritionist, Lola Berry. She's a nutritionist, an author, a blogger, a speaker, and an advocate for happiness. What a job. She even wrote a book about happiness, and she wrote five other books, and you can buy them. It's pretty much everywhere. She's a woman who has inspired hundreds of thousands of people all around the world to be kinder and more caring to themselves through food and nourishment. It's not just of their bodies, but of themselves as a whole. And uh, Lola has a, a, a backstory that, that comes with some, some, some heaviness, okay? So there's a trigger warning. Um, sexual assault is a part of Lola's story, 
and she does talk about that in in this conversation or she refers to it in this conversation but we are talking about overcoming adversity and that is definitely what Lola has done with her life and so Lola and I talked about um, well she actually she talked about common misconceptions about something that she has survived which is anorexia. I think it gets swept under the rug a lot because it is, uh, you know, the mental health. And I think mental health is that kind of like umbrella of like, ooh, we don't really touch that. It's oh, like, not on this show, mate. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? Like, I mean as in like the public's perception. Yeah. And I think... Because I, I let me just say this, because the, the, the vibe I get is that much like someone, uh, uh, somebody who doesn't know may look at someone who's depressed and go, it's a sunny, shiny day. Just fucking feel better, mate. Yeah. Nothing's wrong. Yeah. Just feel better. Yeah. Uh, is it a similar thing with someone, let's just eat a sandwich. Yeah. It's not that hard. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard. I mean, it's tricky because the reality is every single person is different and mm. it affects different people in different ways and there's obviously you've got anorexia, you've got bulimia, you've got disordered eating which can be, you know, calorie restriction and then binge eating. Binge eating is massive and if you have anorexia, often the – the path out of anorexia is through binge eating. That's how you start to find um, balance. I remember I was on a shoot and someone said, gee, you're too skinny, you look disgusting and you've got to shoot in two weeks, eat quick. And I just binged for two weeks to get my weight up for that shoot. But that's what had started a bit of a roller coaster for me. So as far as like is that I don't think there's any like, you know, if someone's anorexic, there can be so many different like causes, there can be so many different reasons. I think the best advice that I feel like I – could share is that I got so much help. I got yeah. so I got so much help. I was seeing psychs. I was seeing holistic naturopaths. I was seeing counselors, and you know, I know, I know, I can feel when my insecurities come back, and when I notice mm. if I, you know, sneak an extra run in or something, where I'll, and I'll be like, oh, like, and I'll just go and get go check in and just like talk it out, and then I just go, oh, it's back to balance, right. and I think you start to realize. For me, it's like it actually comes back to a bit more self love and like loving who I am and going. You know what? Like, I can't think. I used to, when I was younger, when it was probably more, when it was much, it was more consuming to me. I don't think. I don't know. I think with eating stuff, like I now enjoy everything. Like I'm a, I am a foodie. That first boyfriend's dad that opened the door and said she's an eater. Like I am. I love cooking. I love eating. I love sharing food. Good food, though. I know if I was in a situation where I was eating like junk food, I may well feel really guilty about that after. And yeah. you know really try and eat only greens the next day or something like that. I could still easily fall into something like that. But I think when I was younger, I associated my worth on my appearance. And like if I ever went through a breakup, I'd be like, oh, it's because I'm not pretty enough. Like that would be kind of like my natural kind of response. And I used to think that I I had this thing where I remember a friend of mine was really, he was awesome. His name was Charlie and he knew that I was going through a rough patch and I was literally, I did one one day, one time when I did 10 days on water only and then I would just binge for two days on like the most unhealthiest foods I could get my hands on. And I remember he just, he saw me and I was still practicing as a nutritionist and he came and he hugged me and he just goes, darling, we've got to get you sorted. And I moved in, for, in with him for three months, breakfast, lunch and dinner with him. He cooked for me, he dropped me at work. He'd pick me up at lunchtime, take me home, cook me lunch, go running with me in the morning and he really taught me the kind of like values of when you honour who you are and you actually love who you are as a person. Mm. And I remember he was 
this gorgeous guy and we would walk through Paran Market in Melbourne together to buy our salmon. And I used to think as I was walking through Paran Market, oh, my God, everyone's looking, thinking that this really ugly girl is walking around with this really good-looking guy. That was what was going through my mind. And he would sit with me at night and be like, you are pretty and you need to know that. And I, it took me so long to even feel confident enough to feel mm. like a pretty girl. So for me it was very much about self-worth. But I mm. know that every diff- every person's story is completely different. But the best thing I did was be open to help yeah. and know that there is light because the the mortality rate is really, really high. For anorexia? Yes. Yeah, because yeah, of your heart. I remember I had an event at um, Crown, Crown Casino and you know how you've got to go up those massive stairs? Yeah. And I, w- I was walking up the stairs with my friend and I started to get heart palpitations. And it was because I couldn't get up the stairs because my heart was working so hard oh. in this little skinny, yucky body. Wow. <laughs> I think the only, the only other person that I remember, um, uh, uh, Daniel Johns, the guy from Silverchair. Yeah. He went through a whole thing yeah. there. I remember because I you know, had the chance to interview him a yeah. bunch of times throughout his career. I remember him passing through that. I remember it wasn't – I didn't interview him when he told, but I remember reading an interview about him saying that – it was a control thing for him. Yes. Do you relate to that? Yes, absolutely, yeah. So I think there's often um, a correlation when you've got no control in one part of your life, you'll try to take it from somewhere else. There's also a really high correlation with um, uh, sexual abuse and then because you've got no control, and that was my history as well. And so because I didn't have control in another part of my life, the food was something that I could have control of and that was something that I knew that I knew the answers to that whereas everything else felt like it was kind of falling apart. So absolutely, I think that um, it is definitely about control. And the, the correlation between those two is something like one in two, one in three. It's really high. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear nah, that. It's if if people are listening, though, and I don't know, you know, don't worry, I'll put a trigger warning at the start. Oh, sorry. No, 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 it's fine. I, no, it's totally fine. So I'll put a trigger warning at the start. Um, if somebody is listening and they do relate to anything you've just said, what would you say to them? Oh, like get help. Like and don't be afraid to ask for help because you can feel really alone and you can feel like you're, I know I felt it was my fault. I really blamed a lot on me. Mm. And I think at the end of the day, you you know, you know in your heart and I just, I just, I got, I got really a lot of help and the people that have helped me along the way are still the people that have got my back when shit hits the fan in my career as well, mm. you know. And a little light goes on and they're all still there? They're always wow. still there. They don't go anywhere, you know, and they're the ones that are there when I have gone through the crazy eating disorders for, you know, and that takes a long time to come out of. I think, yeah, my advice would be just, like, don't be afraid to ask for help. And, and the people that have got your back, you're like, I feel so grateful and so mm. lucky. And this might sound really messed up and warped. I don't regret anything that's happened to me. Yeah, that's okay. Because it's brought me, like my strength mm. and it's brought me self-belief and it's brought me, I think, that authentic, that being real and like not beating around the bush. And but if, not, but if, you, if you work with those people and you do the work, it gets better. Absolutely, yeah. I, in my experience, But at absolutely. the time when you're, I mean, I can only talk about it from my own experience but when, and the depth of it, you think, oh, this is how it's going to be forever. Yeah. Which, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah totally. You can't see the out of it. You yeah. can't see the outside of it. Yeah, and you think that, that, you think that there's not an answer and mm. that, that it's, there's, the answers are really, really bad and, yeah. and you know, and you don't <laughs> yeah. really want to be here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's why, that's why I say to you, like, I, I think that obviously horrible things happen to a lot of people. Nah. But if you look back, if I look back at them, man, like, 
there's reason that that even went on for the other person that was involved. You know what I mean? I'm sure that there's there's a bigger picture to it all. Holy fuck, that you can have that compassion. Uh, I'm if I. I don't know. I just feel really grateful for everything that's happened to me. That is an ext- extraordinary stance to take, to have that I compassion. I know. It's the only way I can see it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big deal, Lola. That's a really, really big deal. Thank you, I guess. No, no, really, because it's one thing to have compassion for yourself. And yes, it wasn't my fault. I didn't have a say in it. And da 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 da. But to then. Now, don't correct me if I'm wrong here, yeah. but are you saying that clearly something was going on in that person's life for it to happen as well? Yeah, I would imagine oh, so. Yeah. That's, a, that's a humongous leap and it's a big one. Um, a lot of people wouldn't be prepared to take that leap. But I think also every situation is different and uh, I... I'm not saying that my situation is like anybody else's. So, mm. like, I know that they're... No, 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 of course, yeah, of course. So, of but course. for me, I just think far, far out, like, fuck, shit, bad shit happens to a lot of people. Everyone. Well, yeah, everyone. everyone. And I just think I'm really lucky that I'm sitting here in front of you now, you know. <laughs> like, I feel really grateful for that. And I'm really grateful that I get to do what I love. Mm. And I think that the really uncomfortable moments and the really big failures are the moments that actually – give you, make you who you are and, yeah, I don't regret anything that's happened to me. So there it is. Lola Berry, Carly Findlay, Denga Tut, Leanne Enoch, those four magnificent guests all talking about overcoming adversity in their lives. Thank you so much for listening to this uh, put-together episode of the show. I hope it was okay for you. I'm going to try and have a new episode up next week. Um, thank you very much to Andy Ma, my producer, for making this show happen, and Haley Van Spagna for helping me coordinate my life at the moment. Um, but uh, whatever you're doing this week, I hope it's good. I hope whatever adversity you're facing at the moment, you're feeling a, a bit better about facing. And, uh, you know, just know that, you know, you're not alone. You just had four stories where you've heard other people deal with stuff and, and get past stuff. And, you know, maybe it's a part of the human condition that we only grow when we're challenged and some of us in our lives get to do a whole lot of growing. Um, So whatever you're doing this week, thank you so much for listening. Um, Hug those near you. Until we talk next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.